0: We're going to jump into uh, a little bit of the book of Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes is one of three wisdom books of the Old Testament you have Proverbs you have Ecclesiastes and you have uh, Job in addition you'll have some wisdom literature scattered throughout the Psalms and the Song of Solomon however the three main wisdom books of the Old Testament New Testament wisdom book would be James uh, we we need to take all three of these books as a whole to be wise if you take just Proverbs train up a child in the way he she should go and when he she is old uh, they will not depart from it if you take that as a promise and don't put it up against ecclesiastes which is more skeptical and more well under the sun it doesn't always go a plus b equals c and then if you put on top of ecclesiastes job that says there's satanic evil in the world and opposition against the people of god and great suffering then you'll be wise you can't just take one of the wisdom books without uh, taking all three and be wise. So we're going to jump into Ecclesiastes and I'm going to try to run through the entirety of chapter two. Chapter two of Ecclesiastes is very, very profound and it hits the street for us. It deals with pleasure and meaning in life pleasure and meaning in life. This image here is uh, everything under the sun, Ecclesiastes. The reason that it's uh, under the sun like that is is because everything under the sun is a, a common phrase over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. It's an interpretive key to the whole book and it's nuanced. Here's what it means and, and most of its flavor. It means life without God in view or life without eternity in view. It can also sometimes mean life in a Genesis 3 world after the curse. You know, God said to Adam after he disobeyed uh, thorns and thistles, uh, the ground will grow from you and to dust you will return for dust you were taken And in addition in Romans chapter 8 We see that God has subjected the entire creation to futility or frustration This is sometimes what under the sun means It's that things don't always go like we planned or like we would want or like we would hope And sometimes the righteous And suffer. And sometimes you can do all the right things and it go really bad for you. And for some people, they do all the wrong things and it goes really well for them under the sun. And so we're going to look at uh, chapter two, which helps us to look through the lens of where do we find meaning in life and specifically pleasure, pleasure. Uh, we often look for meaning and significance in life in pleasure, So let's read one through eight of chapter two, and then we'll begin to go through it. This is the English standard version. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, which could be translated vapor, mist, breath. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. The delights of the sons of man. Now, modern scholarship is divided on who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but I'm convinced that uh, Solomon, the third king of Israel or the the son of David, is the one who wrote Ecclesiastes. Because when you read through the book, everything he describes matches the life of Solomon, and especially in this chapter, which we will look a bit into his biography. Uh, We see here several paths that we, even we, are tempted to go down to find meaning or satisfaction in life. What is life about? Why am I here? Why do I exist? What is this whole thing about? And we see here jokes, alcohol, projects, beauty, money and possessions, music, sex, praise of man and work. All these we'll see in these first 11 verses of chapter 2. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, we see, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, which means mist, breath, or vapor. Now, this word pleasure means gladness or sensory joy. Gladness or sensory joy. Pleasure ultimately cannot fulfill the longings of the human heart. Okay? The test has been done by Solomon, and he gives us the conclusion right at the beginning. He says it cannot fulfill the longings, the desires, the deep-seated angst of human beings. And then he is going to go out uh, in great lengths to explain this in chapter 2 here of Ecclesiastes. Now, the first street he goes down to find meaning is laughter. Laughter. Is life about laughing? Is it about jokes? Can we find substance here? And his answer is no. I found it interesting that if you do some Googling, you'll find that most comedians are very depressed people very depressed people. And you would think opposite, right? Like on the surface, you would look at comedians, you'd be like, man, they would be great to hang around. It would be fantastic to be a comedian, the way they see the world and the way they, they're just probably amused all the time. Meanwhile, it's not the case. In fact, there's a podcast called the hilarious world of depression where the interviewer who is himself a a comedian interviews comedians about their depression. Okay? Not a Christian podcast. So if you go listen to it, don't be offended because uh, comedians do what comedians do and they offend people purposefully. Now, what Solomon says here is it's vanity. It's vanity, meaning there's nothing there. Vapor, mist, breath. Here, you could see a little better if I do that. How's that for you? Vapor, mist, breath. This is what James says, New New Testament wisdom literature, that our life is in chapter 4. He says, what is your life? Your life is but a breath or a mist or a vapor. Surely, uh, James is drawing here from this word. And he says of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? The word mad means to make look foolish or make a mockery of. It's senseless. Senseless. It doesn't make sense. So, moving on from laughter, he says, I'm going to try alcohol. Now, for many of us, we seek meaning in drugs and alcohol, but maybe not meaning so much as a band aid. Maybe medicine. Maybe we medicate more so with drugs and alcohol. But Solomon here is trying to see is there meaning here? And watch what he does. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So this is a test experiment. Notice he says, I said to myself, I will test you. I will test you. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And so Solomon here is doing a test. He's going to get drunk on purpose to see if he can find some substance and some meaning here. And his conclusion is, nope, it doesn't work. Drinking wine, believe it or not, is never prohibited in the old or new Testament. Okay. And this was not grape juice, nor was it grape juice at the last supper, nor was it grape juice when the apostle Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Okay, this was a bad interpretation of many fundamentalist camps and it's you throw it out. Okay, it is forbidden for the Christian to get drunk with wine. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wine can fill you with uh, a spirit, if you will, and I'm not talking about a demonic spirit, but a, a sense where you are not in control of you anymore. This is the prohibition in the New Testament. Rather, we are to be full of the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit of God has control of you, not the spirit of alcohol. And you, you all have either encountered this yourself or you have family members or friends or you've, you know, at least watched drunks on TV getting arrested. And you, you know that you would say things on alcohol and do things on alcohol and challenge people on alcohol that you never would if you were sober. And the only explanation is that something else has control of you and you don't have control of you. And so in the same way, the New Testament says we should be full of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit is controlling us. But the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is when he has control of you, you have control of you. You are more of a sound mind on the Holy Spirit, if you will, drinking the Holy Spirit than you are when you drink wine. Now, the the Old Testament says that wine gladdens the heart. That's God's intent. God's intent for giving us the gift of wine is to gladden the heart. However, when you overdo it and you enter into a state of non soberness, you are no longer gladdening. You are drunk. Drunkening. I like to make up words. I hope you're okay with that. (laughs) You are drunkening the heart. Hmm? That will be a new entry in Webster's next week after the sermon gets posted online. The idea is that you you are not in control any longer. The wine is in control. But Solomon here says, is there, is there substance here? Is there meaning here? What if we just spend our days drinking? Is that why we exist? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under Heaven during the few days of their life. So he says that I searched the paths of drunkenness and we can add to that drugs, uh, e- either illegal or legal. You know, some people can get prescriptions and overdo it, trying to find some kind of relief or escape or perhaps meaning. Now Solomon is going to move on from here verses four through six to works. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So now he's going to explore building projects or work laughter, wine, drugs, alcohol. Now he's going to explore projects. How many of you go down this path? This is a little more honorable path because if a man doesn't work, he shall not eat. We learned in the new Testament. So this is one that if you give yourself wholly over not H O L Y W H O L L Y to work, you might get praised. You might get a raise. You might get recognition. You might get promoted. However, Solomon says, is there deep meaning and and ultimate significance here in work. And so he he goes to town. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Now, we know that this is not just your typical home and gardens insert, you know, the the centerfold of home and gardens. Wow, look at that. No, this is beyond your capacity, maybe beyond the capacity of all of us put together, emptying our bank accounts. How do you know that? I know that because you can tour Jerusalem Tomorrow, and look at the pools of Solomon. You can go there and eat lunch. There's a playground by one of them, and your kids can play while you look. These are massive pools that you can see from satellite to water these parks and gardens. Now, now you don't need massive amounts of water to water your few fruit trees, and your little daisy, you know, patch, and then your tulip patch over here, and your three bushes, do you? No, you just need a couple gallons of water a day or maybe not even that Solomon used giant, massive pools that could be used or seen from satellite to water these projects. These were massive endeavors. Now, now you realize, okay, by now that Solomon is not himself out here doing the work himself. Right. You realize that he, he is architecting. He is planning. He is putting over taskmasters who are over taskmasters, who are over taskmasters, who are over workers. He's like the CEO of the top, you know, of the fortune 500 companies. And he's calling the shots. He is the man. Okay. Let's move on. Where else does he look for meaning? I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delights or delight of the sons of man. You see, they're the workers. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Now, you know, you have to not put American ethnic based for life kidnapping slavery on top of this text. You mustn't do that. OK, slavery has been a reality since Genesis chapter three. Just read the book of Exodus. Okay, And, and the Jews weren't the first to be enslaved as as a nation or a people. There are, even in the New Testament, there's commands of slaves that you are to obey your masters and submit and work as if you're working for God and not. See, but what happened in America was it was founded on kidnapping, which First Timothy says is sinful and wrong, man snatchers, enslavers, kidnappers. Okay, This is why the whole system of American race-based slavery is not what the Bible says commends or more like it regulates okay now now for some of you this might not be a problem for you but listen if you're doing any kind of evangelism or any kind of apologetics then you need to have an answer for how the bible could not condemn slavery you need to have an answer for that i mean look at this text i bought male and female slaves and i had slaves who were born in my house who did all the work of planting the vineyards and doing his projects and digging the pools. Solomon is not out there with a shovel, digging these massive pools that could be seen from satellite. No, he has taskmasters who are over taskmasters who are over taskmasters who have a massive workforce. Okay. And interestingly in the new Testament, one out of three in the Greco Roman world were slaves and they were of all kinds of ethnicities. And the, the slavery of the new Testament was not the kind of menial tasks, teachers and professors and mathematicians and artists. And it was all kinds of ethnicities, not just one. Okay. So, so please do your research on this. I mean, the, the whole book of Philemon is a letter about a runaway slave named Onesimus who Paul meets has converted and then sends him back. Okay. So Here's the distinctive. I had to take this trail because for some of you, I can't believe that we're talking about slavery in church and it's being commended in 2019. Okay? Now there's whole books written on this, and and we don't have time to get into it any further. If you'd like to talk to me more about that, I would love to do so. I've preached on uh, Philemon in my church. We, my, my other pastor and I, Eddie, we go on the radio and talk about this often. Uh, we we do forums and seminars about this because of where we're at uh, in Wilkinsburg. So if you have questions, please come talk to me. I would love to to talk more about this. But we could say that these are more like workers and. Solomon is more like a CEO. He he is taking the credit for all the work that all these other people are doing, but he is planning it, he is organizing it, he is orchestrating it, and he is funding it, and it's getting done. But he's not the one out there sweating, no doubt. What else did Solomon try to do? Well, he had flocks and herds. Now, now in an agriculture culture or a farming culture, how did you have wealth? Well, you had wealth in part by having a large farm, you know, in the Jews from the very beginning, starting with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then the 12 sons of Jacob and, and their descendants, they were always shepherds and farmers and their wealth was always wrapped up in livestock. And so Solomon here is saying like, look, I had great possessions of herds and flocks. How much? More than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I amassed more animals than anyone before me. I also, verse 8, gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces. I had treasures from all over the world. And as you know, the nations came to Solomon to hear his wisdom. The queen of Sheba came to hear the wisdom and to have him unscramble riddles for her. We're going to look at this in just a moment. But in addition, we're going to look at the singers, the men, the women, and the concubines, the delights of the sons of man. So let's look at this. First Kings 11, one to four. Um, That's not going to show up completely on there. So I'm going to read it out of my notes here. So this is first Kings 11. Eleven, one to 4. Now Solomon loved many foreign women. Now we're talking about the concubines here, okay? I amassed many concubines. He loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, more than likely, the daughter of Pharaoh is to whom the letter or the song, Song of Songs, was written. Okay, the book in our Bible, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, was probably to this Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of Pharaoh. So in addition to her... Oh, look at that. It's appearing on the screen before us. It's fantastic. Now, (laughs) Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And then he's going to name some of the nations that he loved. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations, concerning which the Lord said... Do not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, Disney princesses, princesses, and 300 concubines. These were just for his pleasure. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his, I'm sorry, of David his father. Now now this is outrageous for us at this time. But ancient kings had power beyond what you can imagine and what they said went And in addition, the, the, um, the 700 wives here has more to do with making peace and making treaties with other nations. And so he would marry the daughter of the King so that there would be a, a pact, if you will, with Jerusalem, the King of Jerusalem, Solomon, and with these other nations. That's what was going on here. But in addition, he has 300 concubines. Now, listen, if anyone could explore, if there was meaning and fulfillment and substance in sex, it was this man. This man. And he's like, nothing there. And now for some of you, this is not a problem. But for some of you, it is. And for some of you, it will be hard for you to imagine that this would not make you happy. And you're going to have to maybe experience heartbreak after heartbreak after dissatisfaction after dissatisfaction until you realize what Solomon here is laying out for you as it concerns sex. Let's look at 1 Kings 10. I got it here in my notes. 1 Kings 10, 18 to 21. This is concerning his great possessions and gold and silver and the treasures of provinces. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. An ivory throne overlaid with gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests. While 12 lions stood there, one on each end of the step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. We learned that silver was accounted as no value in Solomon's kingdom. I mean, you talk about wealth. You talk about power, you talk about prestige, and you remember the story that when he was very young, he went up to worship God before the temple was built. Solomon was the one that built God's temple, and God appears to him in a dream, and he says, ask of me what you will, and you remember what he asked, didn't you? He asked for this list in chapter 2. No, he did not. He said, would you give me a wise and discerning heart that I may govern your people for they are such a vast people and I am of little account. I'm paraphrasing. And then God answers him because you have not asked for great wealth or the death of your enemies. I'm going to give you the wisdom you asked for such that there will be no one, no one as wise as you to ever live. But in addition, I'm going to give you what you have not asked for great wealth and possessions and honor. And so here is Solomon in chapter two and throughout the book of Ecclesiastes trying to use the wisdom that God gave him to see where is the meaning found? Where is true life found? If I'm the wisest person to ever live, then I should be the one to search out the depths to see what matters for people to do. In their few days on the earth. That's what he's doing. Now if we go to chapter 2. Verse 9. Here it is. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired. I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all of my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in my doing it. And behold, here's the sum of it, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So so after accomplishing all of that and going down all those roads, the sum of it is it was like I was chasing wind the whole time. And you can imagine that, right? It's fall, the leaves rustle, so you, you feel the breeze and you go to chase it and grab it. And you're just running around like a fool and people are looking at you from the outside saying, "What what is this person doing? They're definitely on some kind of hallucinogen here. There's something weird. Is But meanwhile, when you chase all these things that Solomon chased, you look like that. You look foolish to God. And yet you're chasing. Which one are you chasing? So let's go through it again. Where are you at? Ready? Jokes. Maybe laughter. Projects. Alcohol. Seeking beauty in my environment. Money, possessions, music, entertainment. Sex. Sex. And we're going to to human praise here. Look, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. great fame, glory. He tweets and he gets a billion retweets. His Instagram page is off the charts. No one has more followers on Twitter than Solomon. And he's like, you know what? It doesn't mean anything doesn't mean anything there's nothing there and then in verse 11 he says work work whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil and this was my reward for all my toil so so he does say that there is some reward what's the reward the satisfaction within the toil and he returns to this over and over in the book okay it's a theme if you want to rise above the sun if there is ultimate meaning here it is it's that god has given you work to do and the work that he's given you to do you should enjoy doing it now let's let's dig a little bit deeper okay C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, has written uh, a little book called The Weight of Glory. And he talks about where we seek pleasure. The pleasure meaning is not in the things, but only comes through the things and points beyond the things. So he's talking about books and music. But you can put any of those categories that we just mentioned. Ready? This is from The Weight of Glory. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News of a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I am trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as inducing them. Lewis here is saying that if you trust yourself to these gifts of God, Like, is there anything wrong with work? Is there anything wrong with laughter? Is there anything wrong with alcohol? Is there anything wrong with sexuality? Is there anything wrong with making your house or your yard beautiful? Is there anything wrong with great projects? No, a hundred times no. Those are good things. But if you entrust yourself to them, they then become small g gods, and they will break your heart. They cannot give you what God can give you. And so here's, here's Lewis one more time in mere Christianity. That one's a little smaller up there. So I'm going to read it from my notes. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. He's using logic here. Creatures are not born with desires unless there's some kind of satisfaction for the desire itself. Examples he gives a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire, which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for the true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must not make it the main object of life to press on. I'm sorry, I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Now, what he's saying here is very profound. If you find within yourself a desire that the best dinner cannot satisfy, that the best sex cannot satisfy, that the greatest cinematic experience in a movie that you've ever had cannot satisfy. I mean, you realize friends that if you have the internet, you have access to every song that has ever been recorded at your fingertips on your phone. And if that's the case, are you happy yet? No, you're not. So Lewis is saying here, listen, if you realize that these are but appetizers to the main course, if these are but previews to the real movie, if these are but pointers, signposts that point beyond themselves to the greater, then you can actually enjoy them. But if you think they will give me the satisfaction, the real, the substance, what I desire deeply, you will be disappointed every time. However, once you realize that they are mere gifts and not God, you can actually start to enjoy the gifts. Isn't that glorious? And you can worship the giver instead of the gift. This is what Solomon is helping us with. We know that God is the true pleasure, the real pleasure, the substance. Look at Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life, life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know that God is the author of all legitimate pleasure. And and I would say that even even the sinful pursuit of pleasure is a blinded pursuit of God. You're actually looking for him, but you're bumping around in the dark and you can't see that he's right there. In your pursuit of sinful pleasure. Because God is the author of pleasure. He's the fountain from which all the streams flow. And look at this. Fullness of joy. I like root beer. I like ginger beer too, but root beer does it better. When you pour root beer in a cup, or for some of you Guinness lovers, the froth comes up to the top. And if you just keep pouring, what happens? It's so full, it spills over. That's the joy that God has. It's unlimited. It, It flows over, and he's not running out anytime soon. And he's offering you infinite joy. And yet you're just stuck on the dingy appetizers. So am I. I get tricked all the time. Oh God, wake us up. Let's move on quickly. Finish the chapter. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can man do? What can the man do who comes after the King? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So he says, now I'm going to consider, is it better to be wise or is it better to be foolish? Which path is better, madness and folly or wisdom? And he says, what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. In other words, I've accomplished all this, and who can accomplish more? Like I've exhausted all there is to do. I've blessed my kingdom. I have done good for my people. I have done massive projects. I have amassed wealth beyond anyone else. I have more wisdom than anyone else. There's nothing more for anyone else to do. I've exhausted every path in life. There's nothing more for others to do who come after me. But then he gets some light in verse 13. He says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly as there is more gain in light than darkness. So, you know, in an agriculture culture, and in a place where there was no artificial light, you had to light a lamp, you know, no swiping the iPhone or the Samsung and putting on the flashlight, none of that. You you had to light a fire, literally, to get some light. Or it had to be a giant ball of light in the sky. That was your light. And so he's saying, you can get way more done, and you can see more in the light than you can in the darkness. And you can get injured in the darkness, often. And so he says, it's better in the light than in the dark. Just like if you have wisdom, it's better than if you are just foolish. Verse 14, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So he's saying, even though the wise have eyes in their head and they can see what they're doing and why they're doing it and where they're going and the fool can't. He perceives that the end of both of them is the same. And this discourages him. What's the end? Verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What will happen to the wise and the fool? A funeral. regardless if you're wise or if you're foolish in life, the end for you is the same, says Solomon. Now remember, under the sun. you got to keep that in mind the whole time we're going through this. He is searching out what is good to do without God in view, without eternity in view, under the curse, under the frustration and futility of life, and in a world where demons and evil run rampant. You have to remember that. Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. that's depressing, man. So he's saying, think about this. If you want to pursue life and being remembered leaving a legacy for yourself, think about how many people have gone and come and who is actually remembered. Like you remember Hitler but that's not a good thing. you remember Judas but you're not naming your child Judas like like Judas is not number one in the list of 2019 baby names no. But here's the question. This was posed to me and it blew my mind. Ready? Do you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Their names. They're your blood. You think you're going to be remembered? Is anyone going to care? Under the sun, maybe not. And so you can see why, man, this perspective is just despairing. No purpose, no meaning, no remembrance, nothing. But I won't leave you in despair. Let's move on and finish The chapter verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And if you know the story, his son was not wise and he lays a heavier burden on the people of Israel and they rebel and the whole kingdom is divided. And all of his work goes to nothing one generation later. And that can happen to you. That can happen to me. We live wisely. We store up. We plan. We, we try to make it good for those who come after us and they're fools and they waste and they squander. And there's no appreciation and no remembrance of you and your efforts and your wisdom and your planning. Nothing. That's what he's saying here. It happened. His fear Happened, it was realized. We can read it in the pages of Scripture. So, verse 20 I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil with wisdom and knowledge and skill. I'm sorry. I'm going to read that again. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now we're going to jump out from under the sun. And this is God's view for the Christian. Ready? It is in vain, vanity, mist, vapor, breath, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, now you noticed in that last paragraph, toil, 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 meaningless vanity. Here's God saying, you know what? It is actually vanity for you to toil with anxiousness as if there is no God in heaven. As if you don't have a father who cares for you. As if not every one of your hairs is numbered at any given moment of any given day of your life. As if he doesn't give permission for the ravens or the sparrows or the birds to fall from heaven and die. No, rather, he doesn't want his people eating the bread. You know, what do you toil for? Well, in this culture, it was just to eat. And in many countries around the world, your work has no meaning other than I get to eat today. Eating the bread of anxious toil. I'm so worried. Am I going to eat? Am I going to have enough? I'm anxious. He says that's vanity. Rather, God gives to his beloved sleep, rest, rest for your souls, friends. What did Jesus say when he was amongst an anxious and worried people? Do you remember? Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. You see, without God in view, without the Lord of glory, you will be a restless human being. And you will find no meaning. And you will find nothing but anxious toil and despair and vanity and chasing after The wind let's finish. These are the last verses of Ecclesiastes two. There is nothing better for a person than that. He should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So now we finally get to lift up from under the sun. And, and the commendation here for you friends is God is purposeful in giving you your life And what you have to do with your life. And my task is not your task. And your task is not your neighbor's task. And you should enjoy the toil and the work that God has given you to do. Because it's from him. And it has the capacity to honor and glorify him. Verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? In other words, without God, you can't truly enjoy anything. Even your toil. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So the idea here is God's purposes will be ultimately realized. Even the sinful people who go about their way seeking their own will saying, I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my own soul. My will be done. Screw you, God, at least in actions, maybe not in words. God's purpose will be realized through them too. And there's nothing they can do about it. And all of their accomplishments and wealth will accomplish his good purposes. But we friends who know the Lord have the opportunity to say your will, your way, always, not just in song, but in action and in attitude. You have that opportunity. And you can agree with his purposes and whatever he brings into your life and whoever he brings into your life and whatever skills he has given you and whatever desires he has given you and whatever opportunities he has given you. These are of God and you can find enjoyment there doing your work. Listen, with God, with him. The end of Corinthians, Paul says to the church there, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, say it, is not in vain. There it is. So we've risen above the sun, and we've said, if you don't have God in view, if you don't have eternity in view, if this is all there is, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But if it's not, there is a God in heaven. And listen, if there is a great day of judgment, then the Christian can smile. Judgment scares most of us. It should make you rejoice because your life matters. In the end, there will be a verdict over your life. And what you did for him will last. And it is not in vain. And you will receive eternal payment or paycheck forever. Every day matters, friends. But if there is no God, there is no meaning. If there is no ultimate judgment, there is no purpose. You have nothing to do but try to find fulfillment in your pleasures. But if God is real... If he is alive and well, then look at this verse, 1 Timothy 4, four. For everything God, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This means that whatever you experience in good and, and legit, I'm not talking about sin, legitimate pleasures, gifts of God, you can enjoy because God has given it to you as a gift. Now, if someone gives you a gift, what is at least polite to do or say? thank you. And there it is. Look, it is not to be rejected if it is received with Thanksgiving. Oh God, thank you. Friends, you can rejoice for waking up. You can rejoice because your car started. We have a brother in our church from from Uganda, from Gulu, Northern Uganda. And uh, he, he said that most people, and I was there, I, I, I've seen it. Most people do not have a car. And so if you have a car in Uganda, you are The upper class, and people hate on you for having a car. Like you are the object of jealousy and upsetness because you are upper class. Now, for most of us, we have several cars, and you're upset because you don't have the newest Maserati or Tesla or Ferrari or whatever. It's just a Honda Civic. Right? Meanwhile, you go to some other countries, you have a Honda Civic, man, you're a king, you're a queen. And so maybe we need to be thankful for what God has given us and we can actually find some joy in the gifts of God because we're not seeking ultimate pleasure and satisfaction and meaning and substance from them. Amen. Colossians three twenty three to 24, whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Their substance. Whatever you have to do, listen, it is a gift from God if it is legitimate. And you will be judged for how you worked and with what weight you worked. It says work heartily, not lazily. And if you have an attitude, my boss is not my boss. God is my boss. And my ultimate paycheck is coming. Then it doesn't matter what you're doing if you're doing it for God. Right? So rather than maybe being grudging about your employment or what you have to do every day, maybe you could think this is what God has given me at least for this season. And I will do it with joy and I will do it with his strength and I will face judgment and I will say, look, I worked for you doing this, that, and the other. And it has meaning then friends. you see no God, no meaning, no God, no purpose, No God, no satisfaction. No God, no ultimate reward. But because there is a God in heaven who keeps amazing details. I mean, details beyond what you can imagine. Such that Jesus said, hey, every idle word spoken is going to be judged. Okay. (laughs) Now, for the Christian, we know that judgment is not for um, condemnation, right? For the Christian, our judgment is for reward. It's, it's as if, Paul uses this image, it's as if your life is put before God. And there will be wood, hay, precious stones, and precious metals. And then God's going to light fire to your life that's accumulated before him. And all that is of substance will last, and you will be rewarded for it. And anything that is of wood, hay, stubble is going to catch on fire and be off in ashes and smoke. And friends, you have the opportunity with God in view to make every day count for eternity. Will you be conscious of God in your every day? God in your moments, God in your work, God with your frustrating boss and co-workers. God as you're tempted by Satan and demons to go down the road of illicit pleasures, tempted to make good things God things. Will you remember? That he's not just with you, but he is empowering you. To live as I am commending, as the New Testament here is commending. Friends, the only way that we can know this path of life here in Psalm 1611 is to know Jesus Christ personally. To know the Father in heaven personally. To know the power of the Holy Spirit. Not know about, know personally. Like, I know my wife more than any of you. And you can know God like no one else because he is willing to stoop down and have that kind of a relationship with you. In fact, this is what was commended by Jesus in John 17 three. This is eternal life that they know you. He's praying and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, to have eternal life is to go through the perfect life, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and to entrust yourself fully to Him. To turn from sin regularly, not just once. We don't repent once. You know Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that all of life is one of repentance. We're in a constant state of turning from sin to God. We are continually being saved. And we have the life of Jesus, the resurrected life available to us. And you can call on him anytime, anytime, any place for anything, and he will show up. And it's not because of what you have done. It's because of what Jesus has done. So let's give thanks and, and pray together. Let's remember what Jesus accomplished for us to, to break us out of that under the sunness. And the great hope friends is that one day the curse will be lifted. The futility and frustration will be lifted in a sense. If there's matter and every molecule of matter has the curse attached to it, he's going to extract the curse and your body and your soul is included in that extraction. It's called the resurrection. It is coming for us. And that is our hope. That is why we don't chase the wind and experience vanity because it all matters the resurrection is coming. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us to at minimum be more conscious that our everyday matters. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this chapter of the Bible, for this book of Ecclesiastes, though dark at times, though despairing at times, we thank you that it is truthful and it is down to earth, street level, Monday morning type of wisdom father we thank you that you allowed solomon to go down all the paths that we seek to find life and father he went down those paths for us and gives us insight that there is nothing but vanity chasing after wind there father may we be encouraged that our every day can matter Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have life in him. Our everyday, our moments, our work, our toil, our eating and drinking, our enjoyment of life can all have meaning and great purpose when done in your presence and for your glory. God, help us to be conscious of you every day, not just in these few hours on Sunday morning. May we live for you always, we pray. Holy Spirit, help us, please. Awaken us. Open our eyes. May we be conscious of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Let's sing.